0: We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode.
1: Hello to everyone listening to the Planet Mask Podcast. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me Terrence Thomas, who's a local DFW motivational speaker and author. And this was actually a conversation that, you know, came up by uh, just kind of saw him on a few kind of featured local DFW blogs and articles and really wanted to reach out um, just because never really had anyone that I guess had, you know, a huge focus and priority on things like public speaking and kind of motivational talks. So definitely thought it'd be kind of cool, uh, you know, to see what the background was like for someone that got into that type of field. And, you know, if there's any tips for anyone that wants to improve maybe their own public speaking. So thank you again, Terrence, for, you know, coming on the podcast to discuss your upbringing and, you know, how you got involved. My
2: pleasure. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to be here. Mm -hmm.
1: So I guess I wanted to just kind of first ask about, you know, honestly, what your kind of upbringing was like. Were you uh, born in the DFW area?
2: I was born in Georgetown, which is north of Austin, and I stayed there until about age three. And around that time, my mom started using drugs and she started getting into the life, the crime life, I guess you would say. And the Mexican side of my family, because my father is actually from Mexico, they tried to get custody of me. And at the time, my brother was a newborn he was less than one year old. And so my mother, not wanting to have me and my brother taken away from her by Child Protective Services or the Courts of Texas fled Georgetown and moved up to Fort Worth. Uh, In my book, We Must Fail to Succeed and Make Today Your Day, most of the childhood story that I describe in these two works uh, takes place in Fort Worth. Fort Worth is where I got my identity. Fort Worth is where I learned who I was and where a lot of my story takes place, Grayson.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And how old were you when, uh, I guess, you transitioned and moved over to Fort Worth? And, you know, what was that kind of move like? Uh, You know, had you ever seen Fort Worth before kind of moving there with family?
2: I was three years old when I moved to Fort Worth. And uh, I really don't remember much of it. Mm -hmm. I I have certain memories of my my life as a toddler. And other than that, you know, like Fort Worth just happens. I I don't remember the day that, you know, we arrived on I-30, I-35. I have no idea. You know, it's just I remember my aunt taking us in and caring for us because once we got to Fort Worth, my mom, you know, she she really got invested in the crime life and she was in and out of prison for most of Mm -hmm. my childhood. And so a lot of the stability that my brother and I did have came from being able to live and stay with my aunt in Fort Worth.
1: And I can imagine, I mean with kind of your mom in and out of you know crime and prison, you know, were you having to I guess step up a lot at kind of a young age as far as uh, taking care of your younger brother or doing anything like that?
2: That is an exceptional question and the direct answer to that is absolutely. We stayed in different motels across Fort Worth like for example, the uh, South Oaks Inn, which is on Felix and, uh, 35 and the inner the interstate motel which is on I20 we stayed at all these different motels because my mom was uh she 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 was always running from the police and yeah. we could never have an apartment because she didn't want to put her name on a lease you know because she would easily be found and there were times when my mom would just have a drug binge and she would go to sleep for 16 to 24 hours because she was up for 3 days and 3 nights using drugs. And so during these times, my brother and I would be locked in the room and we'd look in the small refrigerator and there would just be like ketchup and salt and we were hungry. And so my little brother, I I would take him out to the local grocery store and I would give him a little list and I would have a list and we would go to uh, steal lunch meat, loaves of bread, cheese, hot dogs, Mm -hmm. and everything we needed to get a decent meal My little brother and I would meet outside of the store in the parking lot and, you know, put all of the food that we just stole into a backpack. And then we'd go back to the motel and eat. There were other times when I was out there on the streets, uh, panhandling, asking people for for money. And I remember exactly what I said. I would walk up to strangers like in the parking lot at Kroger or Walmart or McDonald's and I would say, excuse me, sir, ma'am. I know that you don't know me, but me and my brother are stranded out here and we're trying to get something to eat is there any way you could help us by going and buying us something perhaps? And under the circumstances, a person typically didn't have time to go and buy us something. So they would often give us money, which my mom used for drugs. But there were these, these, these times when we felt incredibly lucky and a person would take us into McDonald's or the Kroger and they would just like go shopping for us. And like for my brother and I, that's what we really wanted. We wanted for our fridge and the, the, the motel, to be full of food. And uh, this was one of the ways that I had to take care of my brother because he wasn't good at panhandling. He wasn't good at, you know, walking up to a complete stranger and asking them for money. Uh, additionally, another way that I had to take care of my brother was I would go fishing by myself. And uh, there was a, there, there, there's a creek that's uh, where I-20 and 35 meet. It's under the overpasses. And I remember going down into that creek for eight to nine hours, just fishing all day. And I would come home with a basket full of fish and I would clean the fish. I, I would wash them and put cornbread on the fish and then fry them up, you know, just to feed my brother. And this is one of the ways that I, I helped to take care of him. I was always responsible for watching out for him. And one of the things that I describe in my book is just being absolutely terrified that my brother was gonna be kidnapped and murdered one day because of drug dealers that my mom owed money to. When we were growing up, we had bullet holes in our door because five Deuce Crips came to kill my mom. And luckily my mom slammed the door before they were able to kick the door in and get into into our home. Uh, But when she slammed the door and locked the door, they just opened fire. There's literally bullet holes in the door. And I remember just hiding in the closet, just just being terrified at, at what happened. And so every day I got out of school, I was always wondering, where is my brother? And you know, like I I remember I would get on his case because sometimes he wanted to just, you know, stay after school and practice for football or try to have a social life and hang out with his friends. And I'm like, Justin, you don't do that. You come home. I don't care what you have going on. This is a dangerous situation that we live in. You come home each and every day. And you know, of course he was just a uh, a stubborn little, uh, little boy. And, you know, he didn't want to listen to his big brother, but anyway, we made it through our childhood without, you know, these, these violent events that I uh, perceived to happen. They, they never happened.
1: Mm-hmm. And like where I could imagine, did you guys have any type of, I, I guess, run in with cops, like with, uh, you guys having to regularly, you know, steal items at some of these grocery stores. Did you have to have any type of, uh, run in situation like that?
2: That happened all the time. Uh, <clears throat> there were several occasions where I did get caught stealing, and some of the some of the words that I dreaded were, "Excuse me, can you please step back into the store?" Mm-hmm. If I heard that, my heart would just drop because I knew exactly what was going on. Uh, my brother and I would be dragged into a security room, and you know they would show us footage of us, you know, shoving food into our coat, and uh, typically there, 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 my mom would come in once they found her and, you know, she would just start screaming and yelling at us. It was kind of like a show. Okay. You know, I knew that my mom wasn't actually mad at us, but it would convince security that, you know, like we had it coming and they would usually let us go. And there were different circumstances where they didn't let us go. Uh, We were caught shoplifting in Forest Hill for baby clothes. My mom would take the baby's clothes and she would sell those, uh, items to drug dealers who had infant children, usually for half price or a direct exchange for drugs. And so on this one day, I had made it out of the store and I was in the parking lot and I saw police coming from every direction. And, you know, while I'm in the parking lot waiting for my mom and brother who were still in the store, I saw the police draw their weapons. There were like uh, two cops on the left side, two cops on the right side of the front door of this Dollar General. And you know, like my hands just started sweating because like, I know exactly what the cops are doing. there. You know, they're going in for uh, my mom, brother and myself. Of course, they didn't know that I was already outside. And so I, I ran to this guy and I was like, excuse me, sir, I'm trying to get to my home. I live, you know, over here in Fort Worth. Can you give me a ride? And the man just looked around. He sees police everywhere. He's looking at me like my knees are all shaking and I'm just sweating. And the guy went and told the police where I was. The police apprehended me. They put me in cuffs. They uh, went into the store. They got my mom and brother out. They threw all of us in the police car and took us to the Forest Hill Police Department. And uh, after being, uh, what what is the word I'm looking for? You know, after being put into the system and being booked at the police station, uh, my mom was taken to prison because uh, she had violated her parole. And the police department, they sent me to the bridge Teen youth shelter, and my brother was sent to child protective services where he ended up in a foster home. And so we had several run ins with the police. You know, like I was very familiar with police language. If police were talking about CPS, I knew that they were talking about child protective services. If they were talking about their beat, I knew exactly what they were talking about. And some of the police language, like 10 4, I, I knew all of it because that's how often we actually encountered police. Mm -hmm. And when it
1: came with, uh, when you're kind of mentioning on the bridge homeless shelter, was like your younger brother not able to go there? Like, do they have like strict age requirements in these type of shelters?
2: That is true. Uh, My brother is three years younger than I, and I ended up in the bridge homeless youth shelter, which is in North Fort Worth, uh, when I was about 12 or 13, which means that my brother had to be around nine years old at the time, which means that he did not qualify to go to that youth shelter. And... I'm just going to share some of my experiences at the youth shelter. Uh, Mm -hmm. That was eye opening for me. Uh, First of all, I lived in a giant house. Okay. There was three stories and I had never lived in a home that big in my life. Okay. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Secondly, this youth shelter just offered security and stability. Like I had never known, you know, there were certain rules that were in place and we had to follow those rules and that was just something that I really, really appreciated. I did not feel like I'm going to be out on the streets tomorrow night. I did not feel like I'm going to just suddenly end up hungry. I did not feel like somebody was going to come in and just start shooting at all of us. I felt safe. And the contributions and responsibilities that I had at this youth shelter, like really transformed me. You know, I, I learned about teamwork. I learned that we all had things that we had to do to make this home run efficiently. And I appreciated so much the effort that the uh, management put in to make sure that us teens had the opportunity to go to museums, go to baseball games, go to the movie theater, go to the aquarium, go to the zoo. These were different things that we did. And I just ended up loving my time at this youth shelter. I absolutely loved it. And I was intrigued at the fact that so many of the teenagers were always running away. You know, like maybe five o'clock in the morning, the alarm would be going off because the back door just opened suddenly and some of the teenagers just took off running. And, you know, like I, I could not understand why they would be w- running away from these circumstances when I enjoyed it so much. I love being there. And, you know, like at the end of the day, it's just that we all came from uh, different backgrounds. And for some of them, you know, like they didn't like the structure and the responsibility that came with living in this this youth shelter and the day that it was time for me to go uh the the the, the gentleman who started it he was an old man named Ed he and some of the management called me over to his office and they said Terrence it's time for you to go we regret to inform you but you've been here uh four or five months and you know we have to send you back to your family and I was just like no please Ed let me stay let me stay <laughs> but they they sent me back to my aunt's house and uh, my brother was also released from uh, Child Protective Services at the same time, so we we met at my aunt's house at, uh, simultaneously. And uh, his experience wasn't so grand, you know. While he was in uh, Child Protective uh, Services with CPS in a foster home, he, he was abused. Uh, he had caught lice several times because the environment was really dirty. The foster parents that took care of him also took in uh, two uh, female foster children and. The, the kids were, were unclean. Their, their hygiene was very poor. The house was unclean. You know, there was like ticks and mites and fleas inside mm-hmm. of the house. And the foster parents used to beat them. And so my brother did not have such an experience, you know, being in state care as I did. You know, and he would tell us about this. He said, you know, like, I, I don't, I don't want to go back to a foster home ever again. And my brother, you know, I remember he would look me in the eye and he always said, Terrence, Don't leave me again. Don't leave me. And, you know, like that just kind of made me feel uh, really sad because I remember when I did leave him, it was because I was handcuffed in the backseat of a police car and my little brother was handcuffed in the backseat of another another police car. And, you know, no matter how much I didn't want to leave him, there was nothing that I can do about that situation. Absolutely nothing.
1: Mm -hmm. Did that like, uh, I guess, like change your mindset about, um, you know, how teen... I guess youth enrichment programs and kind of CPS and a lot of these other programs, I guess, operate because how how large was um, the Bridge Homeless Shelter go to when you went there? Because I'm kind of like at the, you know, the quality so much better. You know, they definitely need to, you know, need funding to expand or something like that.
2: OK, your question about how large it was, are you talking about the size of the house or are you talking about the number of teens there?
1: A uh, number of teens there.
2: I would say that at max, they could have 10 to 15 of us. And the reason is, is because in the basement, this is where the boys stayed on the first floor. This was the common area. Everybody had access to the common area. And upstairs, that's where the girls stayed. And uh, downstairs, there were three rooms. And in the basement, there were three rooms. And we had bunk beds. And upstairs where the girls were, they also had like three or four rooms. And there were bunk beds there as well. And so they would, you know, cap it as so many teens based on the number of beds and how much space they had. They were not just allowing everybody to come in because they were very concerned with the the quality of the experience that we had there. Not only were they trying to provide us with shelter and a place for us to live, but they were all also trying to provide us with the opportunity to Socialize and grow as individuals, so that whatever circumstances brought us to the uh, Bridge Youth Shelter, we were less likely to find ourselves in that in those circumstances again, based on the decisions that we made. And so, they were trying to create an experience that was going to uh, grow and shape us into something better. And I think that uh, that was definitely a success with me. Mm-hmm.
1: And. Kind of when you're coming out there after four months in the program and you're reunited with your brother and aunt, um, you know, was that like an easy transition, I guess, back into like education, like go to school or um, yeah, when you kind of mentioned like the bridge on kind of loving that stability, we're able to, I guess, like have some of that stability coming back to, you know, your existing family.
2: With my aunt, I absolutely had that stability. In fact, there was like stability and overcharge because she was very strict. Now, the reason that the stability would be questioned with her is not because of her, but because of my mother. Uh, whenever I was staying with my aunt, my mom would be in and out of prison. And typically when she would get out of prison, you know, she would come to my aunt's house and she would stay with us for a little bit. Uh, and she would you know, just go back into using drugs again. And then my aunt would tell her, get out of my house. I can't have this around, you know, my kids. And when my mom got kicked out, she usually told me and my brother, pack your bags, you're coming with me. And so uh, the the stability being in question was not a result of my aunt, but rather because of my mother. My mother would come in, you know, force me and my brother to leave with her. And we would end up back in these cheap, drug-infested, rat-infested motels across South Fort Worth.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. And I remember kind of uh, reading about uh, kind of one of the DfW articles where you kind of mentioned on, you know, your change in the school system and some of the teachers that definitely inspired you and kind of kind of led you more on the route for kind of like motivational speaking. Uh, Did you want to give any like shout outs to any of the teachers that, you know, helped kind of inspire confidence in you?
2: Oh, absolutely. When I was at O.D. White High School, which is in Fort Worth on Seminary Drive, <clears throat> I ran I, I ran into a teacher. His name was Gene Hayward. And uh, I was in high school at that time. And I remember I used to wear these dirty suits to school every day. I mean, they were the only suits I had. And like, even on my pants, there were bleach stains. You know, everybody saw that my suits were obviously raggedy. That's, that's the word I'm going to use here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was just trying to Change myself. I was trying to change the image that I was broadcasting because I went to school with uh, students that looked like thugs. They 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 spoke like thugs, and you know society typically avoids them. You know instead of well hello how are you doing today you know the way that they would speak "Uh, yo cuz what you doing you know I'm saying what's up son Like, like people don't respond well to that. In fact, a lot of people get scared. They they become afraid if they hear you talking like that, and so uh i wanted to broadcast a different image i was not a gangster i was not a thug and so there's no need for me to dress that way there's no need for me to speak that way and to give people that impression so i wore these nasty little suits to uh school every day i was working at a subway sandwich shop and i used you know my uh wage of six dollars and 25 cents an hour to, to to go and buy you know, slacks and suit coats anyway this caught the attention of uh a teacher at my high school named Jean Hayward, and we ended up having these conversations about politics. We had conversations about the Department of Defense. Uh, it was March of 2003 when the U.S. invaded Iraq from the south, went into Basra and Baghdad, and I remember sitting out in front of a. Uh, the donut shop waiting for the school bus every day with the Star-Telegram and reading these articles about, you know, the U.S. invasion of Iraq. And then I would go to school and talk to Gene Hayward about it. I would be like, hey, what's an M1 Abrams tank? Why does the United States have so many of its own weapons that were manufactured in the U.S., but the Iraqis have all of these weapons that were manufactured in the Soviet Union? Why is that? Why does the United States have F-16 fighter jets that were built by Lockheed Martin in Fort Worth and Saddam Hussein's using MiGs that were you know, manufactured in the late 70s by the Russians? I, and my, my, my teacher, he would tell me about all of these things. And then we started to get into uh, the ideas and concepts between uh, macroeconomics and microeconomics. We started to talk about fiscal policy uh, with the Federal Reserve. And one day he said, hey, you know what? You seem like a great candidate for my advanced placements economics course. Would you like to join AP economics with me? We would study after school. I would stay and I would teach you advanced placement economics so that you can take the state exam in advanced placement economics. I saw it as an opportunity to, to, to really change myself, to change the topics of conversation that I had with people and ultimately to do something better in life. And that's exactly what it turned into. Uh, Every day, I went in with a couple of other students uh, to learn advanced placement economics with my teacher, Mr. Hayward. And uh, short story, long story short, I placed number one in my high school in advanced placement economics. Whenever I got into McMurray University, advanced placement economics led me to study political science. Uh, As a political science and economics minor, that just train that changed the trajectory of my entire life because uh, after I got out of college, I ended up going to work and do business in China for nine years. You know, like my eyes opened to uh, global ambitions, and you know, I have a story that actually takes place all over the world now, not just in uh, Fort Worth.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was very interested on kind of that story with China when I saw that. You know, it seemed like you went over there uh, for business. I was kind of wondering, like, um, you know, did you know any Mandarin? Like when you decided on like an idea on flying over there and was it related to the book writing, the motivational speaking, uh, you know, a different type of business? Like, um, you know, where did that idea originally stem from?
2: I met a guy who had lived and worked in Taiwan for seven years and this guy just wanted to meet me to go and play racquetball. And at the time, I didn't even know what racquetball was. But I, you know, I'm like I'm a nice guy, and so I'm going to go and try this this racquetball activity out, sport whatever it is. I'll do it. And so while we were playing racquetball, hitting balls against the wall, the guy told me that he had just flown in from Taiwan. And I just had a lot of questions. I was like, how is the culture, you know, in Taiwan? How how do the people do things, you know, like how's business done in Taiwan? And, you know, like he just opened up. He's like, if you're in Taiwan, you're an expert on anything associated with America, the English language, Western democracies, Hollywood, American companies. He says, if you're, if you're over there, you're just an expert. Everybody assumes that you know everything about these subjects. And when you're out on a date or you're walking on the street, you're going to have random Taiwanese people stop you and just start asking you questions because they want to practice their English. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. I'm like, so would you say that it's like really easy to make friends over there? He's like, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's not a culture where people are like, you're different, so you need to stay away. But rather, it's a culture where people are like, you're different. I'm curious. Can I come talk to you? It's a completely different way of doing things. And due to my background in economics, I was fully aware that China was in this major transition from being a uh, manufacturer of cheap goods like little toy cars and, you know, T-shirts that fall apart instantly to becoming a technological superpower in the world. You know, if you uh, think about your computers, your phones, a lot of the technology that's around you, maybe even the microphone that's in front of you, it's probably made in China. And the reason is, is because China started to transition into manufacturing higher tech goods. And so, you know, with all of this knowledge of China in the back of my head, I asked this guy, I said, hey, so what about China? He's like, oh, you don't want to go to China. And I said, why not? He goes, you know, in the United States, we have contracts, we have agreements. You know we have systems and protocols in place. When you go to China, they don't have any of that. And I was like, "Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Please tell me more." <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and he told me more about China, and everything that he said turned out to be true. And that was exactly why I wanted to go to China. For example, uh, when I was a, a teenager, I got my first credit card from the Bank of America for a thousand dollars. My mom swindled me out of my credit card. She said, "Let me use your credit card," and I'll pay you a thousand dollars back tomorrow. I got a guy coming in who owes me some money, and I'll get you your money back. So I, I, I resisted for hours. I told my mom, "No, no, no! I'm not going to give you my credit card." But eventually, she swindled me out of it, and uh, uh, she lied. She lied about giving me my money back, and that was the beginning of me having bad credit. Uh, I was 18 years old, and I had bad credit as a result of something that was not even a decision that I made. And so, you know, as you're probably familiar with the your credit score is going to influence everything that you're able to do in America. If you want to go get a car, if you want to buy a house, even jobs, if you want to apply for some jobs, they're going to go and look at your credit score before they even look at your application. And Mm -hmm. it's just really messed up because the reason that you have bad credit is because you don't have a job. And now the reason that you don't have a job is because you have bad credit. I mean, it's just a double-edged sword, right? And so when I went to China, Suddenly, none of that mattered. Nobody in China cared about my credit. They didn't even know what that was because that was not their system. Uh, I was dropped in the middle of a cash economy. If you had cash, you can do whatever you want. If I saw a nice apartment building and I wanted to live there and I had access to the uh, owners, you know they didn't care about my credit history, whether I had loans that were unpaid or, or, or you know. Uh, a vehicle that was uh, taken back. I forgot what that word was, you know, when the bank comes and seizes it, whatever. They didn't care about any of that, okay? All they cared about, do you have the money right now? (laughs) Yes, I do. Okay, you can move in tomorrow, good deal. (laughs) (laughs) It was a completely different economy, a completely different way of life. And getting outside of the systems that we had in the United States really allowed me to transform myself You know, I was there over there for nine years. The guy who came into China was not the guy who left China at all. Mm.
1: And I kind of, yeah, I didn't really know about that. I I guess like the style of business being so different there was like the, I guess the foundation of like either your writing or motivational speaking, like start over there or did it just, uh, I guess, shape your personality to, um, you know, become more suited to it.
2: Well, One of the first things that has to be observed is that in China, there's no freedom of speech and there's no freedom of press. So the distribution of my work, which also includes uh, talking about my relationship with God and the influence of Christianity in my life, was highly restricted. And as a public speaker, the topics that I, I go over were also highly restricted. Right now, I'm talking to you, and I feel absolute freedom. What do you want to talk about? You can ask me, and I can just answer that question. When I'm in China, no, that is not the case. When you're in China, you as the interviewer and me, we both have to be very cautious of the uh, subjects that we talk about, especially if anything is, uh, if anything criticizes the government and the government's policies, like your show would just be instantly cut off. Because the government has control over all media in China. And so as a, as a speaker and as an author, I was highly restricted in uh, China. And I managed to move forward with it, you know, by focusing more on uh, business material than the inspirational material. Uh, especially since, you know, like a lot of my message is centered around the idea that it doesn't matter what background you come from. You have this power and this potential that's inside of you to do absolutely amazing things in the world, okay? Well, when you get into Chinese culture, that kind of conflicts with their culture, because in their culture, where you come from, who your family is, how much money they have, their political connections, all of these things are going to determine who you are. And because so many of my Chinese friends believe this, they are very bound by their family and the history of their family. And a lot of them really don't comprehend my message, which is, hey, it doesn't matter what family you come from. What matters are the decisions that you decide to make right now. That is going to determine the trajectory of your life. And you have to take responsibility for your decisions. You can't sit here and keep on blaming everything on your mom and dad, okay? Like you are a grown 28-year-old man or woman. You need to make decisions for yourself. You know, Mm -hmm. if you get an opportunity to go and work in this international company that is going to pay you six figures, okay, you don't need to wait for the approval of your parents and the approval of your family and the approval of your community before you start taking advantage of opportunities that are going to absolutely transform your life. But a lot of my Chinese friends, I mean, that's a culture clash, you know, because in the West, we come from the culture of individualism, which means that, you know, we seek, the happiness and success of the individual. But over there, they come from the culture of collectivism, which means that each individual person doesn't matter. The community and the nation as a whole is what matters more. And so the decisions that they make are going to be decisions that are going to be based on the opinions and approval of their their communities. And so a lot of the time, my motivational message, uh, it just clashed with Chinese culture. And so while I was in China, I started to focus more on business. I focused more on team building. I focused more on leadership. I focused more on uh, efficiency, you know, inside of small groups of individuals that are working together toward objectives. And so I just had to change my message a little, a little bit while I was uh, operating inside of China.
1: Mm-hmm. With kind of that, uh, I guess, like adapting the business to meet cultural standards in China, I was kind of wondering if it was, uh, uh, you know, something that popped out was like your music career and like your, you know, being a DJ on top of like your already existing businesses, you know, was that, did, were you doing that in China or did you have to like transition the music at all in kind of a similar fashion?
2: I think that's an excellent question. And it all started in China, actually. You know, when I was uh, <clears throat> in Dallas-Fort Worth up until high school, I didn't even know what a DJ was. I, I I heard of DJ Khaled, but I did not know what the parameters of the label DJ were. I didn't know what that meant. And then when I went to Abilene, Texas, which is west, uh, to go to college at McMurray University, uh, we had a whole bunch of country two-step clubs out there. I mean, if you love country music like Alan Jackson, George Strait, abilene is the place to be i mean it's great and so <clears throat> djs out there in abilene they, they would only play one song they let it in then they would play another song and so it's kind of like you have a guy up there who's getting paid to you know just play music one by one like anybody could do that anybody's grandma who knows how to operate an mp3 player can do that and so still i did not understand what a dj was but when i get when i got to china uh, I met other foreign people from all over the world there. They were from Israel, England, Canada, New Zealand, New Zealand, Australia. I mean, just all these different countries. And they're like, hey, dude, do you want to go to the Chinese club with us? And I was like, sure, why not? Went in the Chinese club, man, it, actually, it absolutely blew me away. That was like an experience unlike anything I've ever known. Chinese people take their clubs and seriously okay don't take it lightly and so you go into the nightclub they have all kinds of dance performances they have all kind of like fire handlers they have you know people hanging from the roofs doing acrobatic stunts and aerial moves the the lights are crazy the music's banging and the dj is a true artist you'd see some uh chinese dj over there mixing on cdj 2000s and everything and there would be like a, a MC somewhere who was usually a foreign guy speaking English because they had a preference for English-speaking MCs over Chinese MCs, even though the Chinese guests had no idea what their English-speaking MC was saying. But you would hear some guy over there, ladies and gentlemen, we have DJ Sharp from Shanghai, China. Boom, 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 and like it was just absolute chaos, and the people were just going crazy. And so, anyway, I mean, this I'm in this environment suddenly, and I'm like. This is so exciting, I could live here <laughs> and uh, that's kind of what happened to me, you know, like I was in these nightclubs, and then one day I ended up meeting this Nigerian guy you know who was sitting down eating a plate of food in this this location called the buzz bar, and uh, you know, I was just talking to this guy about some of my ideas about what would make this, this uh, location better. I was like, you know, first of all these these, these these sofas they're too low, it makes people way too comfortable we need High tables and high chairs so that people can't sit down. You know, if the tables and the chairs are high, they'd be more likely and more inclined to go to the dance floor. The uh, DJ booth is like way up there. People can't see the DJ. They can't interact with the DJ. So the DJ booth needs to be brought down to floor level so people can engage with the DJ. And like I just kept yapping, yapping, yapping. And it turns out that this guy was the owner of that bar. And he said, he said to me, you know what? I really like you, my friend. How would you like to be the general manager of this here bar? I believe that you can make this bar work very well. And I just got hired on the spot <laughs> to be the general manager, you know, this nightclub in uh, China. I was working there for nearly six months and we had some of the most successful parties there. And while I was there, I would hire an MC, I would hire uh, DJs as well. And I realized that I was actually good with a microphone. And so I stopped hiring the MCs because I was better than the MCs. You know, I would take the microphone while the DJs were playing and I would be like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Buzz Bar. Tonight we have the biggest, baddest Halloween party right here in Chengdu, China. And the people are like, yeah, they were just going crazy. And then eventually I thought to myself, the DJ just keeps on like mixing tracks right in the middle of my MCing. And I thought to myself, I would probably be a much better MC if I were controlling that music. And so that's when I started to learn how to become a DJ in 2013. And so in Chengdu, China, uh, I, I became a DJ, and I worked at some of the most notable uh, locations there, including the Jellyfish, uh, Chocolate Club, Club CC at Lan Kui Fong. And it was just an amazing experience. And through all throughout all of that, I also met my wife, you know, like uh, there were different groups of ladies that I knew at the time. And, you know, whenever I'd have uh, events at different nightclubs, bars, I would, you know, get on my phone and I would invite some of the ladies over. And one of the ladies that I knew uh, was the one that would turn out to be my wife. And so uh, it was an incredible experience. And uh, once I went south to Hainan Island and the city of Sanya, which is kind of like the Honolulu of China. I ended up working for a yacht company called Golden Yacht. And I would recruit and do uh, promotional advertising with Ukrainians and Russians, because I was working in public relations and I would sell them tickets and you know do events specifically for them. And uh, eventually what happened was, I also just took on the role of being the, 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 the yacht DJ in the South China Sea. And it was just a great experience. And uh, in 2019, I was approached by the ISY Music Festival, which is a brand of music festivals. It's like Tomorrowland in Europe. And it's the biggest brand of music festivals in China. And I ended up uh, being on the, the, the list of uh, DJs and entertainers for the ISY Music Festival. It was absolutely a phenomenal experience. And if anybody went to my YouTube page, DJ Mr. T Live, they could see some of my promotional videos. Uh, around the world because I also DJed in Africa. Uh, I DJed in the Philippines, Thailand. I did some sets in Cambodia as well. I mean, I've just been all over the place.
1: Mm-hmm. So with kind of like uh, that transition, like in the first original Chinese club and, you know, that you became manager and then that just slowly shifted to DJing and, um, you know, being the MC. And like on top of like with your already kind of a uh, public speaking career, is there any advice for anyone that you know maybe wants to try to get out of their shell a little bit and maybe try to build up their own public speaking? Is there any like common um, mistakes that a lot of people might make in kind of uh, getting out in front of people?
2: I think that there absolutely are common mistakes that a person might make,
1: <clears throat> and the
2: first mistake that I would say is that a person doesn't know their material before you get in front of anybody. You need to know what you're going to talk about. That is absolutely critical. Uh, you and I, we spoke uh, via email, via Facebook before, you know, we actually got on this podcast. You you sent me some of the questions that you were going to ask me. And so I'm aware of the content and material that's going to be sh- shared in this, this podcast. Now, <clears throat> if I looked at the questions and the questions were asking things about, uh, if you were asking me questions about makeup, the latest eyelines, If you were asking me about the latest catalog of purses from the Zara collection, okay, I'm not going to agree to get on this podcast because I don't know anything about that content and that material. Mm -hmm. I know absolutely nothing about it. If you wanted to do a podcast over the latest specs of the new iPhone, I don't know anything about that material as well. So, you know, I feel comfortable talking to you about the things that we're, we're talking about right now. Because this is material that I'm very familiar with. This is material that's in my books, okay? This is material that comes directly from my life and from my memory and from my heart. And so I'm very comfortable talking to you about this. Now, with other people, you need to know what it is you're going to talk about before you go into it. And sometimes that requires preparation and research, especially if you're getting into uh, subject matter that you're unfamiliar with. The more research and preparation you put into something, the more comfortable you're going to be. You need to know your material like the back of your hand. And if you know the material like the back of your hand, this is going to aid you significantly whenever you get in front of an audience or a group of people. Additionally, when I was in college and I decided that I wanted to become a motivational speaker, I went and volunteered at church at my Uh, at my local church with the youth group. And I was responsible for delivering material that came out of uh, a book that I had that talked about the love of God. And and, and it was was really geared toward teenagers, you know, and a lot of the problems that teens are facing, including like self-esteem issues, uh, temptation and peer pressure. You know just the natural curiosity that teenagers had that was the material that I was using at that time, but every time I got in front of the teenagers, I remember you know like my hands were all shaky, I was nervous, I was so sweating, I mean I was so so sweaty, and every Sunday, that nervousness just went down and down and down and down, and it wasn't a big deal at all, you know, after about a month or two of doing it, and the reason that I volunteered was so that I would have an audience on a regular basis. It would help me to develop myself into a speaker. And then, you know, some uh, years later, 2009, I found myself in Dallas uh, for a company event because I was working as an independent contractor for a retail energy provider. And they brought me up on stage to talk to a crowd of 10,000 people. And all I could see was this hot spotlight in my face and blackness. I couldn't even see the people but I could hear the way that they responded to everything that I said. And I remember the message that I was delivering was don't listen to people who have not achieved what you're trying to achieve. Everybody around you has something to say about your goals and your dreams, but a lot of the time they're offering advice and feedback on something that they've never done themselves. If you want advice and feedback You need to find people who have done the things that you're trying to do. And that's where you're going to get good advice and feedback that's actually going to help you to build your dreams. And so that's what I was talking to everybody about. And I remember uh, one of the uh, quotes that I said was, beware of the naked man who offers you his shirt. You know, because so many people around us are trying to do that. They have no idea about doing the things that you wanna do in life, yet they have a million and one suggestions about what you should be doing to make it better. And so I was in front of 10,000 people and I could just hear the way that they were responding to every word that I said. And again, my knees were just so shaky, but you know, over time I learned how to transform nervousness into excitement and energy that I deliver to my audiences. Later on in life, 2019, at the ISY Music Festival, I was in front of 5,000 Chinese people and they're all yelling at me. Oh, DJ, DJ, fai Chung hao. woman, she shi me, DJ. You know, like I can understand what they were saying because I spoke Chinese by that point. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, 5,000 people and like, I was perfectly normal. You know, I was calm. I, 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 was, I felt like I was in my zone. And, you know, like I, I did this one song uh, called Party Da Dong Hai. You know, I'm the producer and writer for that song. And there's like Chinese parts in this song. And under normal circumstances, anytime I had to speak Chinese, I would get extremely nervous. You know, but at the ISY Music Festival in front of 5,000 people, I was up there on the stage. You know, with the microphone, and I was over there rapping. This ain't Jing Joe Su Joe of Fu We got the ballo, to win the dance flow. And the Chinese people were just going crazy because they understood me. And like I was just so calm up there. And the reason that I could be calm like that, once again, is because I knew what my subject matter was. It was my music, obviously. And I had also been in front of so many audiences that the idea of being in front of people just doesn't give me stage fright anymore. In fact, being in front of people makes me comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, being out there in the crowd, you know, that's when I start getting a little bored. You know, like I start playing with my phone and I can't pay attention. You know, like I'm more uncomfortable in the crowd than I am on the stage. Mm. And so that's my advice about public speaking slash being in front of people. Mm-hmm.
1: Definitely. Well, I think that's like really you know important information for anyone you know. Maybe just wanting to get out, whether it's in the music or with public speaking in general, and yeah, try to get out of the shell and you know be able to be on stage and be more comfortable in that experience. Well, to kind of wrap up the conversation, I just wanted to kind of finally ask: Is there any upcoming projects you know that you're excited about? Whether it's with book writing, any public speaking events, uh, you know, anything. I know you have like the, the the public Facebook group as well. Anything going on with that?
2: There are so many projects coming up in 2022, and so I'm going to speak very fast. The first thing that's happening right is we're the DFW Network, which is a 18,000 member Facebook group that I started in 2019. We're having a networking event at Bar Louie in Dallas on Park Lane, February 11th, from seven to nine. And uh, it's a $10 registration fee to come. And this is a great networking event for business leaders all across the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. They can participate in that. And I can provide you with the Eventbrite link later uh, if you have interested people for Mm -hmm. that one. Uh, Secondly, I have written two new motivational books. They are titled A New You and Believe, Behave, Become. Both of these books will be out on the market. This year in the United States and around the world, my publisher is now in India. I found uh, an awesome company in India that does a just absolutely magnificent job with uh, their their publications. Yeah. And I'm really excited about these two books because these two books are about you transforming your life. This is about you accessing the beast that is inside of you. And this mm-hmm. is about you disregarding the mistakes of your past and the pain of your past in a way that... You can use these mistakes and you can utilize this pain to propel you forward to do bigger and better things in your life. Because I sincerely believe that we can all be, do, and have more when we start using the obstacles in our lives to our advantage. And so those are the two motivational self-help books that I have coming up. And now that I'm finally out of China, I can publish Uh, a book that I've been writing for six years. It's titled Made by China, A New World Order. This is my first political economic book. And while I was in China, I had to keep all of my research off of my computer because the Chinese government hacks computers regularly. The Chinese government also pays very close attention to anything that's happening on people's phones. And a lot of the material in this book is... uh, as far as the Chinese government is concerned, is highly classified. Uh, For example, one of the questions that I addressed, you know, is like, is China a problem for the United States and Western democracy? And the answer to that question, according to my work, is absolutely. The Chinese government attempts to undermine democracy every opportunity it gets. The Chinese government is known to steal intellectual property so that it can develop its new weapon systems and... It's ships, it's tanks, it's military vehicles, and it's missiles. And my book is full of actual evidence of how this happens, especially since a lot of uh, US companies move their manufacturing to China. When they move their manufacturing to China, a factory in China needs the blueprint and the technology needed to, for example, make a phone. If you want to manufacture the phone in China, all of the blueprints has to go to China, obviously, right? Now, here's the thing, though. When you manufacture your American designed phone in China like Apple does, the blueprints and all of the intellectual property get stolen and it ends up in Chinese companies hands like Huawei. And it also ends up uh benefiting the Chinese military. I had some friends uh, from Abilene, Texas. They have a they have they have a sports performance racing car company called Art Car and they reached out to me in 2016. And they said, hey, we just designed a new alternator for our performance race cars. We want to manufacture these alternators in China. Can you get us hooked up with a a factory? I said, well, I know plenty of people in manufacturing in China. And the answer is yes, I can get you hooked up with the people that you need to make these alternators. But before you do that, I need to let you know that your intellectual property is going to be stolen as soon as you send it to the factory. And it is very likely that your alternators are going to end up on Chinese Humvees. Are you okay with that? And they were like, what? And I'm like, seriously, this is what happens in China. And so anyway, uh, even though I cautioned them for manufacturing in China, they ended up manufacturing anyway. And a lot of what my book talks about is things that I saw with my own eyes talking to people in the Chinese military. Uh, For example, I know that uh, January third, two thousand nineteen, the Type Three Nine submarines that China has uh, on in their submarine base in Sanya City, they were out there doing testing on the engines. I know that these submarines were docked for nearly three months because they couldn't find the parts, or the the, the submarines were just, you know, so old-fashioned that they couldn't get them to operate. Whatever the case is, right? All of this is actually documented in my book, and these are things that the Chinese government would not want you to know.
1: No, well, I'm definitely excited to you know for kind of the release of that book and um, kind of that transition into a more geopolitical topic um, related to your book, as well as the uh, events and growth um, connected to your Facebook group um, with DFW Network. Now, I'm uh, you know really excited to see you know how that expands and. I really got to check out the Eventbrite link and see if I can come out. Um, you know, definitely excited. And yeah, just wanted to thank you again, Terrence, for it's been like a, a wild ride and just, uh, you know, seems like a lot of crazy stories and adventures you've been on to discuss. But, you know, it was cool to kind of, for you to bring them up and how it kind of aligned you for the career path you're on right now.
2: Thank you so much. If anybody's interested in getting information, about me or anything that i'm doing they can go to my website Mm terrenceThomas.com.
1: for sure we'll definitely make sure to put any type of links on or anything related to that onto the description of the podcast but no really excited to you know check them all out and wanted to thank you again terrence for coming on
2: absolutely my pleasure i appreciate the opportunity
0: we really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the You can also join the discussion on Instagram at graymask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.